So last week, uh, we had a car full of people on our way to the ocean in Florida. And so we decided, well, we had a couple of hours. Let's see what Peter had to say. So we put in the sermon from, from last week, and we listened to it, and the, uh, the children listened along with us, and we were so blessed by the teaching of the Word. And I want to just thank you, Peter, for, for being faithful to the text and for the work, the diligent study that you put in so that you could open the Bible and, and share its contents with uh, Christ's people. Uh, I was blessed by it, and uh, I trust that you were as well. Now, now, Peter took 10 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, uh, and that's no small feat. So he went from chapter 951 all the way to 1927, and, and what he shared with us was that for, in those 10 chapters, Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem, and he's taking his disciples with him, and along the way, he's teaching them about why he has come. And the overarching theme in those 10 chapters is Jesus teaching that the kingdom is coming. But it's not the kind of kingdom that you might expect to be coming, at least not how it comes. In that first subsection, we learned that with the coming kingdom comes judgment. That might have been expected. But what we're going to look at today is that what's very unexpected is that the judgment that comes with the kingdom of God, that it would land first on the king. That the king himself would bring the kingdom to his people by allowing the judgment that comes with the kingdom to fall on him. So that he could actually gather some of us together and call us into that kingdom. And that's where the second two subsections come in. What kind of person is invited into this kingdom? Is it the kind of person that lives a life that doesn't need to meet with the judgment of God? Absolutely not. The self-righteous have no place in the kingdom of God. It's the people who know that they don't have the right to enter into God's kingdom that are invited in. And how are they invited in? Their king dies for them. Their king takes their judgment upon his own shoulders so that it's the humble. It, it's those who seek the mercy of God. It's those who, who know that they're guilty and call out for God's mercy and God's grace that populate his kingdom. And so now we're going to take that, that wonderful story of the gospel into the next Step. Jesus has been journeying toward Jerusalem for 10 chapters. And now we come to that point in the gospel where he enters into Jerusalem. Today's preaching text will stretch from uh, Luke 19, 28, all the way to 21, 4. And we could subdivide uh, this section into three subsections. The first subsection goes from verses 28 to 40 of chapter 19. And there we see the triumphal entry of the king, where you might expect, if that's all you read, that he comes in and establishes kingdom right away, and you have willing subjects that, that proclaim him king, and he takes the kingdom at that moment without the need for judgment. But then you have the second subsection within this section, which runs from verses 41 through 44. And there we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Why is he weeping? Is this not a triumphal entry of the king? Is he not come to set up his kingdom? Is this not what we've been waiting for? Is this not what Jesus has been teaching? But he weeps because he knows that though he is the king who rightly enters into the capital, Jerusalem... He will be rejected. So he weeps. Because, and he weeps not for himself, but he weeps for those who reject him. Because he knows that those who reject him have no place in his kingdom. And then the third subsection runs from uh, verse, chapter 19, verse 45, all the way to 21.4. And what we, hear, we see here are a series of seven challenges between the religious leaders, the false shepherds, and Jesus, the true shepherd. 
the false leaders and the, the real leader. And we see in these challenges, Jesus actually provoking, provoking the religious leaders so that they would, in fact, uh, fuel their jealousy and plot to crucify him. Now, standing behind this section of Luke's gospel is the end of the prophecy of Zechariah. We don't have time to get into all of the details of, of Zechariah, but sometime I would commend to you reading Zechariah 9 through 14. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and he prepares to enter into the capital as the king, the rightful king, he has in the background of his mind Zechariah 9 to 14. Specifically, we can see very clearly in today's preaching text, Zechariah 9 through 11. But if you follow 12 through 14 all the way through, you see in, in 12 through 14 the, the final consummation, the establishment of God's kingdom. So in 9 through uh, 11, what you have is the entry into Jerusalem of Israel's king, but then you have the rejection of that king by the false shepherds and then even by the flock itself. And you see in Zechariah's prophecy uh, sort of interchangeably these metaphors of kings and shepherds, which we're familiar with in the Bible. So we're not going to get into all of Zechariah, but it's helpful for us to know that, that behind this section of Luke's gospel is the prophecy of Zechariah. And it's especially important for us to know that that is in Christ's mind. That's in Jesus' mind. As he approaches Jerusalem, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about Zechariah's prophecy. How do we know this? Well, we'll see. Let me just read for you one verse. I mean, this we could get into so much more, but we don't have the time. But, but we know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is thinking about Zechariah's prophecy because of Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is uh, used in the Old Testament to refer to Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Jerusalem, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So begins this section of Zechariah's prophecy. The king enters into Jerusalem. God has, is angry with the false leaders, the false shepherds, but then they reject the king who comes in. That's Zechariah's prophecy. Now let's see how that plays itself out in Luke's gospel. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You remember from last week's sermon, what Peter showed us is that's the, that's the governing narrative structure of the ten previous chapters. We're going to Jerusalem one time. We're going to Jerusalem two times. We're going to Jerusalem three times. That's, that's how those ten chapters are subdivided narratively. Now we get to, to this new section and we say now we are at Jerusalem. He is going up. When he, that's Jesus, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent to, uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Verse 35, And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Pause there. This is very exciting. 
Jesus says to his disciples, we are about to reenact, or to put it more accurately, we are about to fulfill Zechariah 9, 9 and following. The king is coming. Now you have to put that all in perspective. Remember, Israel's been without a king since 586 B.C.? Zechariah prophesied after the fall of the Davidic monarchy. So in Zechariah's prophecy, he is looking forward to the reinstitution of the Davidic monarchy. Jesus says now to his disciples, now is the time. Go get the colt. So the disciples go, and Jesus says, now whether this was divine foreknowledge, or whether or not there was such an expectation, that the king would return and that he would return by riding on the colt of a donkey. He says, if anyone causes you any trouble, just let them know that we are about to fulfill Zechariah 9. And so there must have been great excitement. The two disciples went ahead. The owner says, why are you taking our, our donkey? They say, well, the Lord has need of it. I imagine what the owners of the donkey understood was, the king is coming. Now we know that a crowd, we're going to see this in a moment, a crowd begins to gather outside of Jerusalem. Might it have been that the owners of the donkey says, somebody has just come and said that the Lord needs the foal of a donkey. Uh, let's gather together. Perhaps the king is coming. That's exactly what we see. Re Zechariah 9 being played out, being fulfilled. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, as we said, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Climactic moment in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, this multitude of disciples, not just the 12, it's the hundreds of people that were following him. And perhaps some that had come out from Jerusalem to receive him. And they were saying, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Everyone seems to know what's happening. The king is coming. The Messiah has come. He's entering into Jerusalem. And there is this great excitement, but not by all. Some say, how dare you pretend to be the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy? That's exactly who Jesus is. And that's what he says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus saying, I am the one who fulfills the prophecy through Zechariah. I am the king. And I have come on the colt of a donkey. Should have been a very great moment. A, a moment of wonderful rejoicing as the crowds were rejoicing. But Jesus is thinking a little bit more seriously about the extent of Zechariah's prophecy. It seems that his disciples in the crowd, they're all in to see Zechariah 9 fulfilled, but what of Zechariah 10 and 11? What of Zechariah 12, which looks back on this moment and says, when they see the one whom they have pierced, then they will humble themselves and repent. They're not thinking of, of all of Zechariah's prophecy, just this glorious chapter 9 where the king comes. But Jesus, he knows what was written. He knows what was prophesied. He knows who he is. He knows how the kingdom is going to be established. And it's not through this victory parade into Jerusalem. He's not going to be crowned king. He's not going to take uh, over the Roman Empire by military force. He's going to bring in the kingdom by being rejected by the flock of God's people. He establishes the kingdom by dying for the unrighteous. He knows that. And so he weeps. But he doesn't weep for those who call out in repentant faith. He weeps for those who, according to Zechariah's prophecy, are about to reject him. For they have no place in his kingdom. 
second subsection of this larger section, verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, would that you, oh, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You go back to Zechariah's prophecy. I believe you especially get into Zechariah 12. You begin to see what Jesus is talking about. He makes Jerusalem this, this cauldron, this, this unliftable stone, a, a stone of staggering. People trip over him, and they do not understand who he is. And so he weeps for those who reject him. He weeps for those who will find no place in his kingdom. Now Jesus, knowing full well the gospel or the prophecy of Zechariah, goes into Jerusalem and he doesn't even try to be crown king. In fact, he goes into Jerusalem after having weeped when he should have been celebrating his great coronation into the capital. He weeps and then he begins to provoke the religious leaders. He begins to provoke the false shepherds. He begins to provoke the flock that will reject him so that that which was written, and not that this alone brings it about, but in keeping with that which was prophesied, that he would be rejected. And yet his provocation is not in any way to be seen as him deserving what happens to him. It's him uh, highlighting, revealing what is actually true of the people who would not receive him. And so, so we're going to go through now, and, and the remainder of our time is to look at these seven interchanges between the true shepherd and the false shepherds. In, in, in Zechariah 11, we're told that God commands Zechariah to, to become a shepherd and to do all of these things, and Zechariah does, and he goes and he provokes the false shepherds, and yet the flock chooses the false shepherds over the true shepherd, which in Zechariah's prophecy is Zechariah. And so then Zechariah rejects the people that had rejected him. So this is what is happening. And this sets the stage for the fulfillment of all of Zechariah's prophecy and all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that the Christ should suffer and die in order to establish his kingdom. To put it into the broader context of Luke's gospel, as we've already said, that the Christ should come and establish God's kingdom. With the coming kingdom comes judgment. Judgment falls first on the king on behalf of the true subjects, and in their rejection, judgment will fall on those who reject the king. It's a, it's a backwards way in our thinking, in the natural mind, it's a backwards way to establish the kingdom of God, but it is the only way to establish a kingdom with people in it. Any other way, and, and, and the Christ comes in as crowned king, and judgment comes with the kingdom, and who would stand? So we see all these things coming together. Seven challenges put together. I want to see here, just sort of like in a, in a football game, you have... Jesus begins on the offensive, then the false shepherds retaliate, and they're on the offensive. And then uh, Jesus is on the offensive again, and then the false shepherds are on the offensive twice, and then Jesus ends this subsection on the offensive twice. And what we see in all seven of these interchanges is that Jesus is proved right. And the false shepherds are proved wrong in keeping with Zechariah's prophecy. Let's take a look at these one at a time. The first one, Jesus is on the offensive. So Jesus comes in as the king, weeps over Jerusalem, and rather going to be crowned king, he goes and he provokes the powerful, the elite, the false shepherds at their place of power, which is the temple. So look at Jesus on the offensive here, uh, beginning here in verse 45. And he entered the temple 
And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be, called, uh, be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. But he was teaching daily in the temple. That's the challenge. Jesus lays it down. He goes into the temple and, and he reveals the corruption and the blasphemy in God's temple. He says, this is supposed to be a place of worship. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. But you have turned it into your base of operations for power and money. And then he stays there and he begins to teach them in the temple. That's a challenge. Now, the false shepherds have two options. They can either repent or they can fight back. They fight back. Take a look at their response halfway through uh, verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, these are those false shepherds. They were seeking to destroy him. Were they successful? Verse 48. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all of the people were hanging on his words. Jesus comes in, clears out the temple. The people in charge of the temple are angry. They want to, they want to destroy him. They want to kill him. But they don't know how they're going to do it, because at this point, all of the people are hanging on his words, so they're stuck. In challenge number one, we could score at Jesus one, false shepherds zero. Let's take a look at the second challenge. In this second challenge, it's the false shepherds that are on the offensive. Chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, now that, that's amazing, preaching the gospel, what do you imagine he said? Well, he was obviously talking about salvation by grace through faith, not by works, which is a direct attack against the false shepherds. One day while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? So Jesus is obviously teaching something that they don't like. They are the ones in authority in the temple. They have not sanctioned his teaching. So they go on the offensive in front of everyone. They think they're going to catch him because they know that they haven't given him permission. And so they go up to him and they say, by whose authority are you teaching these things? By whose authority are you doing these things? Because Jesus' teaching always was accompanied by signs and miracles and wonders. And you would think that Jesus is put into a box, into a corner, and, and, and these false shepherds are trying to uh, show the flock that they are the true shepherds. They are the ones in authority. They have not given this authority to Jesus. He is a false shepherd. That's their hope. That's what they're trying to trip him up. But notice how Jesus answers. Verse 3, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. Very interesting insight here. Uh, these false shepherds that are going to reject Jesus are in the process of rejecting Jesus, who are trying to persuade the flock to reject Jesus. All they care about is their power. And in order to hold on to their power, they need the favor of men. They wanted to destroy him in the temple when he came in, but he was too popular, so they backed off. And now Jesus, knowing that this is their principal weakness, says, I will answer your question if you tell me uh, uh, about John. They had rejected John, but the people loved John. They were afraid of the people. 
And they were afraid that if they said what they really thought, that they would be stoned to death. Now contrast that with Jesus, who has set his face towards uh, Jerusalem, knowing that he will be crucified. But he goes, why? Because he's not going to please men, but to please God, to fulfill the scriptures. So if we were keeping track, they didn't answer him, they didn't know how to answer, so we could score this Jesus too. False shepherds, zero. Now we come to our third challenge, and Jesus is again on the offensive. So he takes it, he's provoking in verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. So this is right on the heels of, of uh, the false shepherds not being able to corner Jesus, Jesus then goes on the offensive and he says to all of the people this parable. There was a man who planted a vineyard and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now this is a very uh, charged moment. The false shepherds have come and basically accused Jesus of usurping their authority in front of all of the people. Jesus says, well, I don't think I'm going to answer your question, but let me tell you this parable in front of all of the people. Then he tells a parable about, you know, and everyone kind of understands this imagery that these these te- these. Uh, servants that are coming to the vineyard are the prophets. The tenants are the leaders in Israel's history who killed the prophets. Now, the tenants in the vineyard at, at this point are the, the false shepherds who are, are trying to challenge Jesus in front of the flock. And Jesus looks directly at them And he says, so what when the owner of the vineyard sends his own son, what will they do to his son? Will they receive him? No, they will say, this is the heir. Let's kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. And the false shepherds, the elders and the Pharisees, and we'll see soon that there were some Sadducees, uh, the, those who were gaining great power and prestige from, from the way things were, looked at him and said, surely not. And he looked at them and he says, oh yes, that's what's happening here. I'm the son. You are those wicked tenants who want the inheritance for yourself. You will kill me. How did the scribes and the priests, the Pharisees, Sadducees respond. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they had perceived that he had told this parable against them. Jesus was very clear. They knew it. Imagine all of the people knew it. But what if they did seize him and kill him? They would just prove Jesus right. Look at this. They did not seize him and kill him. Why? Because they feared the people. 
They didn't care anything about God's vineyard. They didn't care about God himself. They wanted the vineyard for themselves, as Jesus plainly said. And so they waited for a more opportune time. They couldn't rebut him. They tried. They said, surely not, Lord. He says, oh, yes, this is true. And then anger was fueled inside of them. So if we're keeping score, Jesus 3, proved right three times. False shepherds, zero. Challenge number four. This time the false shepherds are on the offensive. So they're trying. They, can, they have not yet been able to trip him up. They fight, feel if they could just get him to say the wrong thing or, or to embarrass himself in front of the people. Then they would have reason to dispose of him and get rid of him so they could hold on to the small vestiges of power in the vineyard that they were trying to claim for themselves. So they take another approach. Offensive, uh, or the, uh, the false shepherds go on the offensive. Take a look at verse 20. They couldn't get him then in verse 19 because they feared the people. Verse 20, so they watched him. Just looking for when he might trip up. They sent spies even who pretended to be sincere. They sent people to try and ask him questions to curry favor, but, but they weren't sincere. They were trying to trip him up, to test him, to trap him. They might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So here we go. Challenge number four, verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and that you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Do they mean it? No, these are these spies that are pretending to be sincere. So here's the, here's the challenge, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Oh, now this is difficult, right? Because now they're thinking, this is something where the people will be on their side. Nobody wants to give taxes to Caesar. Everybody hates the tax collectors who are working for Caesar. Now Jesus is in a bind. If he says, yes, pay tribute to Caesar, then the crowd will turn against Jesus and they can do to Jesus what they want. Uh, but if Jesus sides with the people, which they would have done, right? Then they could go to Pontius Pilate and say, we have a man here who's saying that the people don't need to pay their taxes. It looks as though Jesus is caught. What is he going to do? It's quite a challenge. How does Jesus respond? Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. He, he saw that they were trying to trap him. They saw that this was clever. And he said to them, show me a denarius. So somebody gave him a coin, flipped him a coin, he held it up, and he said, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is clever, because if you're, if you're Jewish, okay, on, on a coin, on a denarius, it's got the image of Caesar. He says, anything that has the image of Caesar, give to Caesar. Anything that has the image of God on it, give that to God. Are we not made in the image of God? Are not the very people that he's talking to? Are not you and me? Uh, do we not have the image of God stamped on us? Like a denarius that belongs to God? So he says, oh, give, give the money to God, pay your taxes. But give to God that which is stamped with his likeness, that is, give yourselves to God. It's amazing, so wise. And so he, he, he uh, is pleasing both to Caesar and to the people. Verse 26, therefore they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. Uh, but marveling at the, his answer, they became silent. So even these spies who weren't sincere, who were trying to trip him up, they were impressed a little bit. That, that was a pretty good answer, Jesus. 
Not that they were going to stop trying, but they had to admit that they didn't get him there. There's been four challenges so far. Two of them were initiated by Jesus. Two of them were initiated by the false shepherds. But the score is clearly Jesus four, false shepherds zero. Now this is just beginning to, to anger the false shepherds more and more. They, they want him out of the picture more and more. Because the more they try to challenge him, the more he shows his wisdom. The more that he shows them that he is the true shepherd. That he is is the rightful king. But they don't want that. They want the vineyard for themselves as Jesus has already challenged them. Challenge number five, the, sh the false shepherds come back. Or, um, yeah, the false shepherds come back in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees the, the Sadducees were the real power brokers in the temple at the time. And the Sadducees are those who deny that there is a resurrection. So they believed in, in perhaps going to heaven or, or whatever. They actually didn't have a very developed understanding of life after death. But they definitely denied that when you died, that at the end of the age, God would raise your body back to life. And so they asked him a question. Because Jesus aligned himself more with the Pharisees. He taught about resurrection. So they thought, well, let's catch him in this. They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and all died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, this is compelling, I suppose. You say, okay, we know that Jesus has taught about the sanctity of marriage. He has talked about monogamy and how important it is to be devoted husband to wife and wife to husband. He's taught against divorce. And so they're thinking, we're going to catch him here. If there really is a resurrection from the dead and something as improbable but possible as this were to happen, is the man now a polygamist, thus under, undoing Christ's teaching about marriage? Jesus, though, says, well, you just, you don't even understand the full teaching about resurrection. So Jesus says to them, this is his response in verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So he says basically what he's saying to them is, look, you don't understand. Marriage is for life before death, life after death, when those who are raised back to life, they will no longer be married to one another, but everyone in the resurrection will be married to God. So marriage in this life points forward to the marriage of resurrection, which is between those who are raised from the dead, bodily from the ground, and are married to God. Be equal to angels. So we don't become angels, but he says, just like angels, holy angels, unfallen angels, they're not given in marriage, but they are, they are maintained in, in some kind of a relationship individually with God. Then he goes far and he shows that, of course, resurrection from the dead is the right understanding of the scriptures. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So in other words, he's saying, if God is going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to have to raise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the dead, because God is the God of the living, not of the dead. If God was the God of people who died and then were no more, then what kind of God is that? He has no power. He's the God of the living. He's the God of those whom he will rise from the dead. He is the God of the living, the raised, the resurrection. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any questions. 
one more score for Jesus. Now we go down to challenge number six. The last two challenges, Jesus is on the offensive. And he's provoking them. Not unnecessarily, but necessarily. And in his provocation, he is angering those who will reject him. But he's giving sound theology and sound doctrine and good hope for those who will enter into his kingdom. Here's the sixth challenge. Score right now is five to nothing for Jesus. He's been proved right every single time. Verse 41, but he said to them, so he answers their challenge and then answers back. He says to the, Pharisees, or to the Sadducees, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Interesting, there's no response. <laughs> Jesus just, just lays this down. He says, look, uh, if you want to get into talking about complicated things, I'll give you a, a riddle. I'll give you something complicated to mull over. We know... We know that uh, the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. And yet David himself calls the Messiah his Lord. How is that possible? Because normally those uh, descendants of somebody exalt, not in, not in the same way that we exalt God, but they, they look up to, they respect, and they, they reverence their ancestors or their elders. So how is it that the Messiah can come from David? Does not David have to come from the Messiah? It's a good point, Jesus. Don't, I, don't, I don't know. What's Jesus' point here? Stop talking about things that you don't understand. You want to challenge me with some difficult things? The resurrection from the dead is easy. You want a more difficult one? You answer me this. How can the Messiah both be the source and the son of David? How can the Messiah be both the root and the branch? Don't come to me with such easy problems as resurrection. Now, if the Sadducees had been humble in spirit, seeking the things of God, they'd say, well, I don't know. Tell us. But there's nothing. I mean, by implication, it seems as though the Sadducees just turned on their heels and walked away. They didn't answer him. They left in a huff. I mean, I'm reading that in, but they don't answer. Jesus 6, false shepherd 0. Now we come to the final challenge. Sadducees are gone. But now in the hearing of all the people. So I, I'm just imagining that the Sadducees left in a huff and now the people remaining, because this is all being done in public, you have Jesus and his disciples and then the crowds. Remember, he's doing this in the temple. People gathered together. In the hearing of all the people, after having somewhat embarrassed their leaders, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Maybe pointing at the Sadducees that are walking away, all sullen and downcast and defeated. Beware of them. Oh, they like to walk around in robes. You just picture Sadducees leaving with their, their robes of authority. Oh, they love greeting in the marketplaces. Oh, they love the best seats in the synagogues. Oh, they love the places of honor at all the feasts. But they devour widows' houses. Implication to make themselves rich. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is pretty blunt. Jesus is picking a fight. The Sadducees controlled the temple. 
He cleared the temple at the beginning of these seven challenges. Now he embarrasses the people in charge of the temple, in the temple, sends them away, and announces to everyone, probably within their earshot, don't be like them. At this very moment, continuing in verse chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she has to live on. He uses an illustration right at hand to make the point Don't be like these scribes. Don't be like these false shepherds. Be like this widow. Oh yeah, there were some rich people that put in a lot of money before her. It's nothing. But if you come to God in your poverty, I think there's, this is Jesus teaching on two levels here. Material poverty She who gave two copper coins gave more, percentage-wise, of what she owned than the rich who put in a smaller percent. So that shows a greater devotion. But more than that, and, and Matthew brings this out more than Luke does, at least explicitly. If you can't be like the Sadducees wearing the long robes who sit in the place of honor, who have the authority in the temple, who can you be like? You could be like those who have nothing. And that's exactly Jesus' point. I'm about to be rejected. Remember, in the background here is Zechariah's prophecy. I came in as a king. But the false shepherds are going to reject me and they're going to persuade the flock to reject me. If you want to come into my kingdom, don't be like them. Come to me knowing that you have very little, if anything, to give. And then I'll welcome you into my kingdom. Then you'll be rich. Then you'll be sons of God. In these challenges, Jesus was proved right seven times. The false shepherds were proved right zero times. He's the king of Zechariah 9. They're the false shepherds of Zechariah 10 and 11. At the same time, Jesus is provoking those in authority, the very false shepherds, to kill him. And as we approach Easter, that's exactly what we're going to see. Jesus came to Jerusalem not to be crowned king, but to be rejected by the people he came to save. So now for us, what will we do with Jesus? Will we see who he is for who he is? Or will we be like the false shepherds who really just want the vineyard for ourselves. Last little bit of application before we close our time. Uh, Jesus was uh, entering into Jerusalem about to live the most difficult human week ever. Not just the most difficult week in his life, but the worst week in human existence. There's never been a worse week for a human being. And yet he did it purposefully. He knew the suffering that was coming his way. He knew the the weight of carrying the sins of the world on his shoulders and yet he comes in to fulfill everything that had been written about him that the Christ must suffer and die and on the third day be raised from the dead. 
He knew all of that. Uh, it's not that he wanted to do it on, in the one sense, uh, but there was no greater desire in him than to be faithful to what God had called him to. Now, all of us, well, none of us will be called to do that, but all of us will be called to suffer. God promises us difficult times in our life. So we can learn something so important uh, from Jesus' example here. He rode courageously into Jerusalem knowing what awaited him, not because he only knew the scriptures about his crucifixion, but he could see past that. He, he knew uh, Zechariah 12, 13, and, and especially 14, when, when God did establish the kingdom. So also with us, when, when we step forward into difficult days when, when we are called upon to suffer let us remember that it is written by God that we will suffer but then let us look beyond that suffering to other things that God has promised and uh, dominantly what I want us to show is that he has promised us that through that suffering on the other side of that suffering is glory God's glory a kingdom. Some people want the kingdom without the cross. They want the crown now. Those are those people who wanted the vineyard for themselves. But we know that in order to get to the kingdom, we must join Jesus on the cross. No crown without the cross. So count the cost. Will you be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Will you join him on the cross with the hope of future glory? May the scriptures encourage you. Suffering is momentary. God's glory is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, Jesus. We thank you that he clung to the scriptures. In our text today, we've seen how he clung to the prophecy of Zechariah that the king would come into Jerusalem to be rejected. But that on the other side of that rejection was glory, resurrection, and a kingdom. We pray that you would help us to be eternally mindful of the promises that you've given to us through Christ. Uh, we do not want to be like the false shepherds who want the vineyard for ourselves now. Uh, we want to join you on the cross so that you might crown us as undeserving as we are on the other side. God, please walk with us through our suffering and give us the perspective of Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.